dismissed to Children's Church at this time. And if everybody else would take a Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 2. Before we begin, I'd like to give you a little bit of preparation for the upcoming weeks. We're going to be looking in Daniel, and um, as we look into Daniel, we're going to be covering a chapter um, each time we get together. So we've done, uh, we divided chapter one into two different lessons, and we'll be covering chapter two in its entirety today, and then moving forward, we'll cover the entire chapter. So a good assignment for you is possibly the night before, or maybe the morning of, read through uh, what chapter is coming next, so you'll be familiar with it. We will not always read all of the scripture, um, but it's worth going on your own and making sure that you cover all of that. I want to tap into your emotions a little bit as we get started and ask you what kind of emotion you might have when I present the following scenario. I want you to imagine that you're out driving and you are on a, on a straight road out in the country and there's no oncoming cars and as the road is straight, you're going about 55 miles an hour and then you decide to get your hands at 10 and 2, get right in the middle of the lane and then close your eyes just for a few seconds. What kind of feeling do you think you would have when you get to second number three? What, what do you think is going through your heart at that time, maybe your mind? It's fear. Now, some of you might even be brave enough to get up to driving with your eyes closed for eight seconds. And let's say you're counting one, two, three, four. You're, Things are black as night in front of you. Five, six, what emotion do you have when you get to second number seven? Fear. You're terrified. There is something within each human being. There's a human instinct that pleads us to self-preservation. There's something that makes us fight for our life and do everything that we can to go on even further. When we think of fear, let me give you a quote from a psychologist that I came across recently. It says, one of the most powerful influences on fear is uncertainty. The less we know, the more threatened we feel because lack of knowledge means we don't know what we need to know to protect ourselves. We like to be in the know, don't we? And there are some things in our world that if we don't have the information on that, that is really a struggle for us. We're familiar with the passage, knowledge, or the, the, the saying, knowledge is power. And knowledge of the future, how great is that? How much power can you have if you have knowledge of what has yet to come? You know, predicting the future is a big business in the day we live in. It is a multi-billion dollar business predicting the future. Now, some of you might think of that and say, that, is that right? Is there really that much money to be made with predicting the future? And who's making all of this money? None of you would want to get in on that most likely, but we know that many, many people uh, make a lot of money off of fortune cookies. Perhaps you wouldn't go and take your fortune cookie and gamble too much on that. Many people are making money off of horoscopes, palm readings, 
or uh, the, the cardamancy, which is t- trying to be able to see the future from cards and even mediums and astrology. This is a $2 billion a year industry in America. For some reason in Italy, it's, it's three times greater, $6 billion a year in Italy. People are paying through the nose to try to find out the future. And what we'll see in God's word today is that we have a God who knows the future just as clearly as we know the past. And he's active in working everything out, past, present, and future, to the point where he will one day reign as king over everything. We sang a little bit ago where every knee will bow. Do you believe that? We know that we as followers of Christ, we will bow the knee, but even those who refuse Jesus Christ will one day bow the knee to him, whether it's on that day where we are accepted into his kingdom forever or whether it's on that day where they are rejected and sent to a place called hell. Every knee will bow. We also have a God who is including us in part of that eternal kingdom. All that to take us to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to look at a dream here. Um, I had a little bit of a remembrance of one dream that I had last night. I had a little bit of it this morning, but I couldn't quite get clarity on it. I rarely remember my dreams. Um, How about you? How many of you, you regularly remember your dreams with a lot of clarity? Raise your hand. Raise your hand high if you do that. Okay, look around. Okay, at least a dozen. How many of you will hardly ever remember anything of a dream? Raise your hand. Okay, a bit more. Uh, researchers tell us that the average person dreams four to ten dreams a night. So even if you don't remember them, um, you're having four to ten dreams per night. God has used dreams in the past. Of course, with all of us having four to ten a night, if you think of the billions of people in the world and then go back to the history of mankind, billions and trillions of dreams most likely. God has used, in the Bible, we have record of about 100 dreams that he used for his purposes, for a big reason. And that takes us to this dream here in Daniel chapter 2. We'll read the first three verses. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And then the king commanded that the magicians and enchanters, the sorcerers and Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And so they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So here we find that after this dream, he calls his lead wise people in. It's, a, it's an eclectic group of people. They've got a variety of skills. Now remember, Babylon was controlling the world. And just like they took Daniel from Jerusalem and the other wise teenagers, students, they had taken the best from around the world. So if he really needed some help, he had quite a few resources to draw from. He brings them all in. And in verses 4 through 10, we find that he brings in the magicians. He brings in enchanters. And he brings in sorcerers. Now in those verses, verses 4 through 10, three times Nebuchadnezzar makes clear, I want you to tell me the dream 
and I want you to tell me the meaning of the dream. Now, usually if a king says something, he doesn't have to say it more than once. But he had to repeat himself here because they couldn't do it and they were, they were trying to get some more time or maybe trying to get him to reveal a little bit. And this group, they had a variety of skills. Um, no doubt in my mind that some of these had, were tapping into demonic powers. Now demons can't read minds so they couldn't know what the dream was and so they were lost here but some of these had something supernatural going on. They were using uh, what we might call the dark arts, demonic powers. Some of these that were the wise guys in Nebuchadnezzar's group, they literally just had, had studied dreams before. Okay, this is a symbol in a dream of this here. Well, let's write that down and they likely had a whole system in this capital of the world of what, if you had a dream about this, then it means this. You might, you know, hear some of those things today. If you dream about, you know, leaving your socks on the floor, that means you've got problems with your mother or something like that, you know. (laughs) So they had a system in place. And I'm sure there were some that were just geniuses, maybe good at manipulation. Some people are good at reading the room, getting you to talk, reading your body language, And you'll think that either they know the future or that they're a genius of some sort. So there's a group of people that are assembled here, but Nebuchadnezzar, he's smart. He's smart. He's troubled. He he wasn't able to sleep moving forward. That's how bad the dream was. And he wanted to get the interpretation of this dream. So the idea is is if, I, if I'm really going to believe that you're giving me the correct interpretation of the dream, if it's really true, then you should be able to tell me what the dream is. If you guys are really all that, and maybe he suspected that they were, you know, shysters. And he probably had another group of guys that could come in right after them and fill their spot. So their lives are threatened if they will not give the interpretation of the dreams. Let's skip down to verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except what? The gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. All right, that's bad news for these guys, and that's also bad news for Daniel and his three friends. All the the wise men were going to be destroyed if this did not happen. And it's at this point that Daniel meets God's prophet, or uh, that Nebuchadnezzar meets God's prophet, Daniel. He was not in the group that stood before the king, but he was in the group that would be killed. And in verses 13 through 23, we find four things that take place. Daniel hears about the situation that he's going to be killed, and immediately he says, I need an audience with the king. Get me in front of the king. And so he sets that up, and then he goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, guys, we got to pray. We're going to be killed. We need to pray about this. And when they pray, one of the words that stands out is they ask for God's mercy. They realize that if their lives were taken, God wasn't doing anything wrong necessarily if they were, had their lives ended. 
but they wanted mercy from God and Daniel maybe saw the opportunity for God to do something amazing. Remember, we have God's presence and God's people in Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar took over. They were, these, many of them were taken out of Babylon or taken out of Jerusalem and put in Babylon. And now we can see God working in this very ungodly place. And so he asked his godly friends to pray with him and pray for him as he's already got the appointment. Don't you love that? I, I love that before he has the interpretation, he gets an audience with the king. That's faith. That's saying, I'm gonna do what I can and I'm gonna trust that God does his part, right? After they pray, then God gives. At night, God gives Daniel the dream that those other wise men could not give. And God gives Daniel the interpretation of the dream. The command had already been given for the wise men to be killed. As soon as Daniel receives the dream and the interpretation of the dream, he does not go right away to tell what it is. Do you know what he does first? Wonderful little lesson for us. He prays again. For some of you in your Bibles, it might be in italics there. He stops and he praises God for answering his prayer. He stepped out on faith. He made the appointment. He prayed and asked God, believing that God would give it. And now he goes and he gives praise to the Lord. And all this leads up to verse 26. Look at chapter two, verse 26. Where Daniel is standing before Nebuchadnezzar. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Now, the king's probably getting tired of repeating himself. You gotta tell me the dream, tell me the interpretation, and no more stalling. Those other guys were stalling, and Nebuchadnezzar saw that. And I'm not gonna give anything away. You're trying to get me to give something away, it won't work. And he says, can you tell me the dream and can you tell me the interp interpretation of it? Okay, I need to review a little bit with you. For those of you who have been here for the previous two lessons in Daniel, I gave you an assignment. <clears throat> I asked you to watch for something that we're gonna see repeated, at least in these first six chapters of Daniel. We are going to find a comparison between the living God that we worship today and God's that man made up. That comparison. It came up first right in the beginning of our study because when, when uh, Babylonia invaded Jerusalem, we remember that they took some of the nobles, they took some of the royal family, and they took some of the brightest students along. But there's something else that they took. Anybody remember so far back? What else did they take with them? They, yeah, they went into the temple and took some of the holy items from God's temple. We're not surprised by that. I mean, you know, they were made from valuable things like gold. But the message is very clear because they take the items from the temple of God and they place them in the temple of the false gods. And I asked you guys to watch for a comparison. Right here, we find a comparison. We find that those other guys said, no man can do this. They said only the gods, lowercase g, could possibly do something like that. 
And Daniel stands before him. And Daniel is asked, can you give me the dream and tell me the interpretation of it? And Daniel's answer right away kind of sounds similar to what the other guy said. Because really, he says, I can't. I'm not able to do that. But there is a God. But there is a God who not only can tell you what it is, but Nebuchadnezzar, he's the one who gave you this dream. And more than that, what he's doing is he is trying to tell you something that's going to happen in the future. Well, he hasn't really told him anything yet. Okay, you're kind of talking around it. You're telling me that your God can tell me about this. You're telling me your God's going to let me in on the future a little bit? How's that going to happen? And we see that as Daniel stands before him, look at the end of verse 29, where he says, God has made known to you what is to be. For the rest of our time, we're going to be looking at the dream and the interpretation of the dream. To Nebuchadnezzar, everything that he was going to tell him about this dream was future. Maybe a a little tiny bit of the present about Nebuchadnezzar's present kingdom. But just about all of it was the future. Now you and I, we live in a time after Nebuchadnezzar when these things were predicted. And we look back and when we see the interpretation of this dream, we're going to look at about 80% things that are now history. So God said they were going to happen, and God brought them to be. It's such a wonderful evidence of God's power and how he let men see it in advance a little bit. To us, about 80% is history. And then maybe some of you thought we were going to have to wait till the end of Daniel to get to some of that prophecy stuff, but we're going to get right to it today. The dream is about an image. That's what Daniel is going to tell him. Look, skip down to verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Yeah, you got it so far, bud. Verse 32. The head of this image was of fine gold. And its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold Altogether were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So he tells him the dream. Do you think he had King Nebuchadnezzar's attention at this point. You bet he did. He did something nobody else could do. And he wanted somebody to tell him the dream, but more important than that, what did he want? 
Why was he losing sleep? Because he wanted to know what all this meant. There was something about that dream that was unsettling. He did not know that it was from the living God. God sends this dream. And so first he gives him the dream. And then next he gives him the interpretation. In 36, 37, in the first part of 38, he says, God's showing you something that's going to come. God is letting you in on something. And you need to pay close attention. Now we're going to start reading right at the bottom of verse 38, where it says, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these And as you saw the feet and the toes partly of the potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall shall be divided. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as, look at this, the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, plural, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. He gives him the dream, and now he gives him the interpretation. You had a dream about an image. It was made up of different materials. Did anybody notice of of the materials, the descending order and value? What do we start with at the top? What what is Babylon? Babylon is the gold. And then they get less in value as we go down. Nebuchadnezzar is not told specifics as far as who was going to be rulers of these kingdoms. But the details are incredible. As we, with hindsight, look back, the details are amazing. We have the blanks filled in. The head, he was told, that's you. You're the gold. You are Babylon. A world empire. They controlled the whole world. There's going to come another world empire after you, represented by the chest and the arms made out of silver. Now, you and I look back today, and we know what that world empire is. It's Persia or Medo-Persia. They were the ones that took over after the Babylonian Empire. The middle and the thighs, not quite as strong, were getting less valuable, made out of bronze. Well, this was the the Greek Empire. We see that very clearly today. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about Alexander the Great in just a moment. And while we're not given his name here, the, the details are undeniable that are given. And then there was one more world empire that would follow the Greeks that would be in control up until Jesus came. Those of you who know that, go and say it out loud. It was the Roman Empire. Rome was in control. There's four world empires that are listed. And after the Roman Empire is no longer running the world, there will not be another world empire. We haven't seen it yet. There's one still to come in the future. Now, several guys tried it. Genghis Khan, he tried it. 
who tried taking over the whole world and he failed. Stalin tried taking over the world. Hitler thought he would have a chance at it. And even Napoleon, he made a run at being, at being the ruler of a world empire. But nobody was able to do it. And if I can just stop here and give you a confidence. We had some of these young people here for this activity recently and one girl asked, I just, how can I know for sure there's a God? And maybe some of you understand that Christianity is not the only faith system in the world. There are many. How can we have confidence that we have the right one? Anybody ever have that thought? How can I know with so much confidence when there's other people who believe just as strongly in theirs? When we look at the scriptures of our faith, we get, I get the greatest confidence that the Bible is true from fulfilled prophecy. If people go and do the work, it's undeniable. And I understand that the History Channel, National Geographic, they're going to give all kinds of reasons for why those things didn't really happen. In fact, they try to monkey around with the date when the book of Daniel was written. Daniel is so amazing in its prophecy and how these things came true that critics of the Bible who, listen, ultimately they just don't want to stand before God and answer to God. In order for that to happen, they have to disprove the Bible. Critics of the Bible will say, well, Daniel wasn't written when everybody think it was, thinks it was. It was actually written way back here after those things came true. So he's just talking about the past, really. And that's false. The prophecies in the scriptures that came true should give you so much confidence. It's a great study for you to do on your own. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, we're not going to turn there, but there's undeniable prophecy about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, an incredible world conqueror and fighter and what he did. And it talks about his rise and even his death really at an early age, 30 or 33 maybe. Alexander the Great died after conquering the entire world. And we have reference to that. Four world empires. There's one more that we don't look back at history to find, but we have to look forward to. And that's the feet. And also, did you notice the details it mentioned about the feet? It mentioned the ten toes, didn't it? This is a coming empire that, we, that will be ahead of us some, at some point. And what this is going to be is a ten, na- ten nations joined together in an alliance. Ten nations around the world that are in an alliance that rule the world. That will be the ruling power over this world. From one of those nations, there will rise a leader who is the beast. Or sometimes we refer to him as the Antichrist. This is still to come. And so they will have world dominance, but their dominance will not last very long. This next world empire will only have control of the world for three and a half years. And as the Antichrist comes from that group, we find that they'll be in control for that short time. And then what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar so long ago, that stone that was not cut out by human hand that came out of the sky and crushed 
the feet. And everything fell and became as chaff in the wind, blowing, no more to be seen. Jesus Christ is that rock that will crush the image, will make it fall. The parallel chapter to chapter 2, to Daniel 2, is Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7 and verse 7, Daniel is given a vision. It's going to be very, very similar. He's not going to see an image, a statue made of different parts, but instead he is going to see a beast that has horns. Guess how many horns that beast has? Ten. It's a group of ten nations. Now, a lot of people like looking at prophecy and like the supernatural stuff, and a lot of people would like to know the answer. Knowledge is power. If I know what that is, and so I don't know if this is going to come from the United Nations. I don't know if our earth is going to be divided into ten equal spaces with ten groups controlling each one. Or if it's even something we've never heard of today. Be aware. Be aware of people that are trying to sell books and trying to get you money that can tell you exactly what those ten nations are. Some people will name it. We cannot know for sure what they are because that is still to come. And when that comes together, what that is going to do is it's going to usher in the rapture. All of those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation will be taken to be with him. And at that point, we will find the Antichrist rising to power. John, in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 17, verse 7, he saw a beast that had horns. Guess how many horns it had? Ten. That's that alliance. And so when we look at Daniel here, their lives are saved. Daniel is given the reward that was promised. Anybody who can tell me the dream, give me the interpretation, you will receive a reward. I love the stories from the Old Testament, don't you? It's so exciting to see what God was doing, how intentional he was. And some of us get so hung up sometimes that God stopped paying attention to something that happened. Nebuchadnezzar was not a king that loved God and followed him, but Nebuchadnezzar was a king that was put in place by God. We saw that right away in Daniel chapter 1. The king of Jerusalem was taken over. God allowed that to happen. Never think for one moment that God has fallen asleep on the job. Whether it be something personally in your life where it makes you doubt and question how could a good God allow this to happen in my life? Or whether it be on a grander scale, how could a good God allow him to be president of the United States? Don't wig out about it. Allow yourself to understand that we do the best that we can, but then we trust what God is doing and he's putting leaders in place and he is removing them. And what we have from a story like this is not a whole lot of takeaway from this, except for this amazing fact. We trust in the sovereignty of God. We do not have a God who has something bad in store for us who call upon him. 
We have a God who will reign. He's working these things out for eternity. That's what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar. This is going to last for eternity after this next world empire is in place and then after they are crushed. And so you and I look at Daniel chapter two and if you're like me, we talk about God being a king of kings. Well, we have a president here in our nation so and he goes away after a few years. So, you know, doesn't mean as much to me. But when we think of the king of Babylon, the king of Persia, the king of the Greeks, the king of Rome, our God is the king over all kings. And so we truly have a reason to celebrate. We have a better picture because of this that God is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will reign forever. And if you, know him as, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, you'll be with him for eternity in this. Let's pray. Precious Lord, how beautiful to see the, the timeless structure of this story. We praise you that as we come to you and as we uh, look at this record that you've left for us in your inspired word, we thank you that it's not only true, but it has a lesson for us today. Thank you that you saved Daniel and his, his friends back in that day. Thank you that you showed up when it was said, no, no man can interpret this, only the gods. You showed up in that pagan land. We praise you, Heavenly Father, that you allow us to see you in our lives today. And though it might be frightening, and though sometimes we might need to step out on faith before we know all the answers like Daniel did and then trust you, would you help us to be strong like that? And of course, we recognize that the hero of this book and the hero of the story is not Daniel, but it's you, God. We thank you, God, for loving them and we praise you, God, for loving us and using us. As we continue in prayer, I'm going to ask the piano to play through a song and we want to give you a chance to pray. If God has laid something on your heart, if there was some conviction or some tugging, go ahead and talk to him about that right now. We never like to close a time without giving an invitation for someone to accept Christ. There are so many struggles and problems in this world and you need Jesus Christ he does not promise that you won't have the struggles and problems, but he promises that you will not be alone. And right now, you can pray and ask God to save you. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and you can be forgiven. Just call out to him and ask him to make you your child if you've never done that before.